Hello, welcome to season two of Wampum.codes, a podcast where I feature cool indigenous people using technology in creative and cool ways to make positive change in their communities. This season, we have some new formats. We'll be doing some live streams, on location episodes, updates on intergalactic projects, and much, much more. I'm your host, Amelia Winger Bearskin. Yahweh for joining. Let's get started with our guest. John Corbett Nitsikasun, Nia Apatawakosasan, Nia Nehayao Napeoek, Wanakao Napeoek, Waikaisu. Thanks for uh, having me. My name is John Corbett, and uh, I'm a uh, Metis of Cree and Soto uh, and English descent. Uh, and I currently live in uh, Kelowna, British Columbia in uh, Canada. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It means so much to me. You know, I, I read an incredible interview with you on one of my absolute favorite uh, publications in the whole world called Esoteric Codes. Um, and I would love for you to maybe just, for people who haven't read it, you know, I'll definitely put the link in uh, this RSS feed so anyone who's listening to this podcast can go and check it out. But I would love it if maybe you could talk to me a little bit about um, how that came to be. We were talking a little bit before I started recording Um about how you got that interview and and maybe why you're so excited about esoteric code coding languages. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, to try to make the long story as short as possible, it really came out of my um, uh, MFA studies uh, when I was doing my Master of Fine Art at the uh, University of British Columbia. Um, I was trying to find a way to, uh, I guess, bring in my traditional practice, uh, traditional indigenous practice. So I do uh, beadwork, and, um, but I'm also a professional computer programmer. And uh, so what happened uh, through that process, um, as I thought maybe I'll be portraits of my family. Uh, family is always really important to indigenous people. And um, I definitely wanted to, to represent that and because my grandparents never had the opportunity to see where I've taken my computer programming, um, you know, what I've done with it and where it's going, um, I thought it would be a great idea to uh, create those portraits digitally. Uh, so they were represented in a digital world. And that's kind of a we, my version of bringing them into the future. Uh, and then I um, hand beaded with actual beads and uh, deer skin. Uh, my children, so that my children had that link to the past. And um, uh, it was through that I wrote this computer program to create those portraits of my grandparents. Uh, and um, the problem that I first ran into was uh, my physical beading process where I bead and they originally started in a very linear, um, you know, uh, square grid-like form. Um, uh, you, you bead, and one of the important parts about beading is the thread doesn't break. Um, so when you get to the end of a row or the, when you run out of thread, you tie a new piece of thread to it and you continue on. And so you have a continuous stream of beads, and the, it, the first bead is tied ultimately to the end bead. Um, what I noticed when I was programming for that, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, we write loops in programming that go essentially left to right. You do a where X equals one to a hundred. 
and it counts in a linear fashion, one to a hose, uh, it breaks. So you're going one to a hundred and then skipping back to one and going to a hundred again, right? And so it fractures that line. Uh, I, uh, so as a way to kind of compensate for that, I rewrote my loops. Um, they're not efficient uh, from a programming perspective because uh, when I get to the end of a row, I then evaluate if I'm on a even row or an odd row uh, and I go back in the opposite direction. So I count from one to 100 and then from 100 to one and then from one to 100. And then that way you get that serpentine uh, linked, you know, kind of... Um, way of understanding how the, the beads are placed on the screen. Uh, and that was where it originally started. And uh, I, I started thinking about uh, how can I make this programming process more indigenous? Can I use my language? And uh, so my uh, grandmother, um, my, my dad's mom was uh, Cree and Soto. Uh, she's from uh, Winnipegosis uh, in Manitoba, um, but she never told, uh, or we didn't find out about her heritage until after she had passed away. And uh, so as part of my um, wanting to be a part of that or reclaim that for the family, uh, I started taking Cree lessons uh, at the University of Blue Quills in Alberta. Uh, and I thought, you know, what if I can take my language and uh, like this heritage language and make that into, um, you know, use it in programming? Uh, and I immediately found out that that was very, very difficult. Uh, even using the words that I knew, um, programming uh, frameworks typically are based on, you know, the alphabet, the Latin alphabet. And um, are not easily converted so that I can use syllabics, pre-syllabics in my programming. Uh, I have to change a whole bunch of settings just to get the syllabics to even be visible. Uh, and um, yeah, that's that's where it started from. Uh, and uh, after I finished my MFA, um, I started looking at the computer and looking for opportunities to bring in some of that culture. How do you bring culture into a computer? It's a very... Uh, um, you know, mechanical or uh, digital kind of system that we, I think, uh, I can say that we all naturally assume is uh, neutral, and it is not, right? It is not culturally, culturally neutral, uh, and it is not obviously language neutral, and it, it almost uh, requires a knowledge of a global English um, in order to use, right? And that's um, uh, pretty much across all technologies, not just computer programming, but all, all technology is like that. Um, you know, and, and then recognizing that it, it, it inherently brings in some of these colonial ideas as well, um, that they're, they're just built into the technology because that's the way, uh, you know, European knowledges have developed and then, you know, our, our modern day of technology is built upon these processes. Um, and so culture and language is typically pushed away to the, uh, you know, to the borders. Uh, and the way things are structured are done so from a very uh, non-Indigenous perspective. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so that, that's how it started. And, uh, I thought the first thing I had to do was create a programming language for Cree, right? That's I wanted awesome. to get the programming Cree. Um, and uh, so that's where it started. That's 
what I wanted to do. That's really awesome. I, I mean, I really enjoyed looking at it, too. It's so visually beautiful. Um, and I connect deeply with your instincts and your aesthetics and your process, at least, you know, as as, as uh, you know, the little bit that I know about this project, ha having read it and kind of looking at your documentation. I, I too, when I've uh, created projects, try to look at similarities in coding languages to my culture. And would you like to talk to us a little bit about your smudge command? <laughs> that was actually the very first thing that uh, really, where things I think really took off. Uh, and it came from uh, when I started um, learning my language, um, we, before class, um, we would smudge. Uh, so we smudged in the morning and we smudged in the afternoon. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with uh, smudging uh, in uh, First Nations or Indigenous culture, especially in North America, uh, you, you should get some sweet grass or sage and you burn it uh, similar to incense. Uh, and then with those smoke trails, you um, use your hands and you kind of waft that smoke over your head uh, than your ears and your eyes and your mouth. And it's a way of um, allowing that smoke to take those impurities out of your system and clear your mind, open your ears for proper listening, um, you know, uh, clearing your throat so that you speak the truth. And, and uh, there's a lot of um, protocol and uh, uh, history in that process. Uh, and what I thought of um, as I was negotiating the language part of it was, you know, one of the first things I have to do with the programming language is clear the screen. So my my language is actually aimed at creating uh, Indigenous digital work, uh, so digital pictures or video or um, uh, movies or, you know, animations and stuff. And uh, the first thing I have to do every time you run it will, have, will be to clear the screen. And that's where I'm like, wait a minute, I'm smudging. Right, this is a digital form of smudging where you're telling the computer, um, "Hey, you need to clear out the cache. You need to clear the memory. You need to create a space. Uh, you need to empty it, and you need to prepare it. You know, for for this knowledge or this information that's coming." And um, that was where I got excited because that smudge command, uh, if you don't put it as the first line, um, it won't work. It it just won't run. It looks for that command. Uh, and that command internally does all of those things, just you know, clears the cache, um, makes sure that there's nothing uh, obstructing it from running, and then runs or executes it from there. And um, that's the very first thing I created for the language, um, and I think is, is the most important, um, because it's the first thing that sets off, uh, it would differentiate it, or differentiates it from um, other you know, languages, obviously, right, is there's a knowledge there. And so as a user, as a, as a, a Cree person um, or an Indigenous person using and programming in this language, um, the computer is now uh, kin, right? They are now a person. They're a, an entity that I've given or that is knowledgeable about this cultural practice and um, therefore represents uh, a more spiritual entity than just a mechanical or digital entity. 
Absolutely. No, it's 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 really beautiful looking at all of the commands that you have. I'm just going to like read a couple of the ones that you wrote in this article, um, What the English uh, variation of what it does. So you have indicators for identifying protecting story elements, Ver- variable declarations. That's kind of a more, you know, we, we see that in most coding languages. Um, winters, which are loops. I think that's really yes. beautiful. And I like the each time. Um, that one's really amazing, too. Uh, you also have river which is for if and also what is another if statement and so as a coder you i'm sure our our listeners know about if statements and statements or statements you also have an end terminate and a say and talk instead of our maybe our what you have seen previously coders out there as print or output which i think is just really beautiful you have it, it how does it change how you feel the purpose of this code is having those different ways of framing because and it's not a one-to-one you've taken you know some things are maybe used the same as an if statement or a print line but others others have a, a different a new type of function right or okay i know function is a word but you know yeah. Yeah, yeah. they have a new use you know what i'm saying <laughs> well it, and a lot of that actually comes from, uh, you know, I had a very difficult time uh, from day one, uh, you know, go in, go into class to uh, learn language. And the first word I want to learn is computer. What is the Cree word for computer? I'm going to use that so often. Uh, there isn't one. Right. <laughs> That's what yeah. I found out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a number of reasons why. Uh, and Cree language is a very descriptive language, and so they describe what it is. So the original word um, that I was, uh, and I I don't use it anymore if I've kind of forgotten it, but it it kind of translates to a um, uh, shadows in a box. Uh, and oh, that's one of my one of my Cree elders had said it's it's very similar to TV. So a television is a box that has shadows or moving shadows in it. And a computer is just an extension of that. And, and so you have a box of shadows that you, uh, I guess, communicate with or talk to uh, without a pen, right? And so the keyboard, again, there's no word for keyboard either, right? right. So um, it's a device that you can write with out a pen. Right. Um, and so it, it has these um, elements of describing what its function is. Um, the... Uh, the new word, um, or the word that I um, prefer, I guess, um, let's see if I can, um, is uh, it, it kind of literally translates as um, an artificial brain. And that is very similar to um, artificial thought. Uh, and it's very similar to uh, Mandarin. I, I studied Mandarin uh, as an undergrad. And uh, the the word in um, Mandarin is "gianyao," uh, which is a uh, uh, artificial or not artificial. It is an uh, electric brain um, because electricity carries a spiritual connotation in Cree. Um, they've gone kind of with this uh, with, with the artificial instead of the electric, which I yeah, I don't mind at all um, and. Because of the way language develops in Indigenous communities, it's typically, uh, although youth uh, and the younger generations create our own words, uh, elders ultimately have that final say on whether or not it's it's do, uh, usable or not. And when you yeah. in, start introducing connotations and words 
that have uh, a, a very long spiritual history and becomes very difficult to, um, to to create that. And so I'm 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 happy with uh, artificial brain, which is mamitane uh, ijiganigan. I think is how I pronounce it. That's it's, great. Um, yeah, it just means artificial brain. Uh, I, I love that. And I love that more than it being like a, because, you know, I think those of us who are as obsessed with technology as you and I, we like, we like to separate the computer from TV, right? Because we, at least, you know, for myself, when I was, you know, first experimenting with the internet at the age of 12, you know, which was the same time the rest of the world was meeting this weird thing. And, um, at first, it was just a modem box and a terminal screen, and I was tunneling to chat with other people. And it was much more of a communication device, um, more like a portal or a tunnel um, to other people, which was so exciting and fascinating. And it was fascinating because I couldn't just share my voice. I could share files. I could share images. It was suddenly became a different way to communicate with people um, and then this chat form of communicating with people hadn't really existed in real time before then, right? Like there hadn't been, I mean, come on, a telegram isn't instantaneous and in your basement, right? So it was like really new and weird. And and so I like, I like playing with all of these, you know, words for computer um, that can connect to what is important. Maybe in the 90s, it would have been a tunnel or a portal. And then maybe later it's a shadow box without a pen for communicating and then now it's an artificial brain because we see that like wow computation actually got really powerful and is able to do things uh, with automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning that is like really not it doesn't fit in a tv anymore like construct like as a concept you're like this is this is something else and then of course computers are just these portals to the cloud and to apis and to you know these other ways of communicating that are much um, much more about how connected they are and rather than like your own personal computer, right? Um, so that's really exciting to, to see how each generation will respond to these words and then have them be guided by the elders um, in your community to make sure, yeah, like you're not reusing words that have other designations or polluting the designations of other words. Um, that's really exciting. I, yeah. other, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, you, you bring up a really good point because that um, that is one thing that definitely happens in, I think, most indigenous languages is this uh, idea of evolution, right? So words change over time, and they usually retain a lot of their meaning uh, that derived from. Uh, so, uh, like, for example, when I introduced myself, uh, John Corbett Natsikason, um, which, you know, in English kind of translates as uh, John is my name or John Corbett's my name. Uh, Natsikason is actually made up of the word uh, for umbilical or belly button. Um, and it relates to the lineage or lineage. So John Corbett is uh, um, not my name. Um, it is, you know, the essence of what I am that comes from this tradition or this very long head, uh, heritage that I'm connected to. Uh, other beings and other people and uh, beings that are passed on and beings that still exist. And um, so Natsikasun actually carries a lot more uh, baggage with it uh, than it would in English. And um, I, I, to your point about, you know, this evolution of um, word, the word for computer. So before it was this, and now it's, it's transitioned more to this artificial brain. Um, 
and that is a very key element, I think, to uh, Indigenous languages in general, is that they will change and they will morph and um, they are not static in any way, right? And so, yeah, you might have this word for computer now, but in 10 years, that word for computer is going to also, it's going to continually change and evolve because um, what it represents changes and evolves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it's the same. It, it is the same in any language when it comes to technology because the technology changes, right? Like no one says I'm surfing the web right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know>? not <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you know? No one says that. I mean, I maybe so, maybe someone who says it and please, if you say it, please let me know because that's awesome. But, um, you know, just just write me and I will I'll send you a box of chocolates. That's amazing um, because I love that. For, I love looking at old gifts of like kids being like, let's surf the net, dude. Cowabunga. It's like amazing. I love I love that. Is, uh, love it but um but yeah i mean you know i, I remember one time i was like translate i'm i'm not an ex an exceptional uh spanish speaker but i i did used to live in central america when i was growing up and so i sometimes will if there's no one else better and more qualified at a company or whatever situation i will try to help right and so i was talking to uh uh like um, I worked for a company and I needed to explain to them the data services of AWS and, you know, it was in Spanish and I was trying to be like, well, what's the name? What do you, how do you call in Spanish like the cloud? And I'm like, oh, it's like it's it's Nubia. That's like the word for a cloud. And they're like, no, just the cloud. Like just go like in English, it's just the cloud. You know, and like we're not at AWS, we're just Amazon. We just call Amazon, right? You know? So I'm like trying to think of all these other like you know like the analogy word in Spanish. And they're like, I'm like, how do they say internet in Spanish? They're like internet. I'm like, all right, like I'm an idiot because I had learned to speak Spanish before like the cloud and AWS had come. And so I was like, what are the what could it have possibly come? And then every so often, there are definitely terms in Spanish that it's like they went their own way. They call something not an English word or not like an, even an English concept. Um, and that's really cool, too. So I love learning lots of different languages and how they respond to these new technologies. But of course, if you're like, how do you say cell phone? They're like, cell phone. I was in a, a class um, just a couple months ago. And uh, the Cree teacher was saying uh, there's a new uh, trend, especially in the youth uh, in the communities, um, where they're, uh, they refer to your cell phone as your boyfriend or your girlfriend. <laughs> um, so it's your, it, you know, I'll air, quote, I'll, I'll air quote it, it's your lover. Uh, and they'll say, so when you say, you know, what is, you know, what is Jane doing? Oh, she's talking to she's talking to her lover, which means she's using her cell phone. She's on her cell phone. That's what it means. Oh, um, so but it's that because we are so tied to these technologies and these devices, um, in uh, especially in the the Cree communities that I'm aware of, anyway, uh, that's what they're starting to refer to it as. Is because you were so tied to your device, you're married to it, uh, and it's now that extension of you know. Um, uh, and so in, in the context, you have to really listen to make sure that you understood, oh, she's talking on the phone and not actually talking to her husband or That's her boyfriend amazing. or something like that. That's so cool. <laughs> oh, and so apt. I like that because, you know, like it, it is much more similar, I feel like, to being married to a device rather than like people will call it an addiction. And you're like, well, 
it, it's hard because an addiction like you you could choose to maybe live without but like, you know, yeah <laughs> like a lot of these things we don't get to opt out of like okay to be fair i don't need to be on my phone as much as i am but um i can't opt out of it right entirely unless i just you know don't want to have a job or some something like that i don't know <laughs> right yeah. so like, yeah i love that that's really beautiful uh, one of our other guests on wampum.codes talked about um, a, a catawba language app he was building with children in his community and uh, you know again they ran into similar problems of certain things didn't have didn't have names because their their last uh fluent speaker had passed away in the 80s and so you know anything that had sort of been created after the 80s they were like oh we don't have a word for that so they started trying out you know different words that they could talk to people about you know being the word that they use in this app to teach people and um it was very fun to see some of the things that the children came up with i liked their word for cell phone which was rock hands because it's made of rocks and minerals but you hold it in your hand and and i just loved that visual of kind of i i won't see a phone the same way now i'm like oh it's a little rock <laughs> you know it is yeah. a little, it's a little rock um but i always like to say uh you know when people ask me about technology they're like well you know do you not care about the environment and that's why you know you're so into technology because if you're a, if you're really truly uh maybe you know care about the climate you wouldn't be into technology and i'm like well you know we actually haven't seen technology that prioritizes the environment um in in this generation but we have like in in our ancestry like we've seen technology that prioritized the environment like we had lots of technological advances um that that we use that we incorporated into our stories um you know about farming and about preserving things and about you know all, like all those different technologies that we had to teach you know our western brothers so they didn't starve to death when they came to this country <laughs> but um you know so i always say we haven't seen like the AWS that prioritizes the environment or the, the personal computer that is entirely, uh, you know, mined sustainably and maybe it uses uh, pneumatic tubes and air rather than, you know, lithium-ion battery. Like, we haven't seen that, but it, it's within the realm of human um, understanding to be able to do that, right? Uh, we just haven't mm -hmm. seen it yet. So what are some of the, you know, this is like a, <laughs> a strange speculative question, but what are some of the sort of uh, beautiful, amazing, impossible things you would love to see created in the world of technology that co that connected deeply to your values and to, <laughs> to your culture? Besides um, the amazing well, things you've already created? <laughs> yeah. Well, in that, that's, you know, one, one of those things is, um, uh, tying your, uh, you know, in, in my culture, it's uh, life is is very much land-based. Uh, so land-based knowledges, and uh, uh, we learn from the land, we teach on the land, and uh, we ultimately bring, you know, um, nature is uh, so imbued into everything that you do. How do you bring that representation into technology? Uh, and I'm pretty sure in my my talk with Daniel on the uh, esoteric codes, um, I, I mentioned my keyboard. Um, so I've created a, a Cree keyboard uh, and there was a uh, uh, Cree teacher back, I think in the 60s or 70s, who had created, um, a reformatted the Slavics into the star chart, which is more of a, uh, a much more culturally representative way of showing what the alphabet looks like. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? if I want to put my language into the computer, I should have this device that has this cultural kind of origin. Um, so I needed to create a keyboard. 
And when I was, um, I, I was giving a keynote presentation at an Indigenous conference in Toronto uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, um, Elder Little Brown Bear, uh, who's a Métis elder in Ontario, uh, told the story when we were going to sit down in our sharing circle uh, about the protocol of the sharing circle and what it, what it was. And uh, it, to it, briefly, um, you enter, and it's it's very similar to uh, lodges or teepees. You'll notice the door always faces east um, because east is where the sun rises, and that's where the knowledge comes from. All of our knowledge comes from the east. And um, so the doorway, you always enter a sharing circle because it might be in a room, um, but you still enter it, that circle from the east. And depending on your culture, some cultures might, you, you want to circumnavigate that circle before you find your seat. And in some cultures, you might go clockwise, and some you might go counterclockwise. Um, and the reason why that's optional uh, and is based on culture, so in some cultures, uh, I believe Cree goes uh, clockwise, Soto might go counterclockwise. And that's just something that's taught in community. And the reason you do that is eventually, as people come into uh, that sharing circle, uh, you're going to cross paths with people, right? You're going to have to cross. Uh, they're going one way, you're going the other. Um, but that intersection where you meet gives you that opportunity to greet one another, um, say your hellos, and without obstructing them, keep going in your, your directions. And I thought that was a very powerful idea about um, culture and, and how that can work. And when I started dividing, uh, devising these uh, schematics for my keyboard layout in the star shape, um, I rounded off my keys instead of keeping them square just to fill up some space. And then I realized it's not actually a star shape, it's a circle, right? And there's, the keyboard is actually concentric circles. Uh, so I thought, well, now I need a um, circuit board, a PCB. Um, and it's, you know, uh, I watched YouTube videos on how to make your own PCB. And um, somebody who was drawing the schematics for a PCB, and they always teach you about these you want a shortest distance in circuitry, right? Because you know you, you want your electrons to get to the microprocessor as quickly as possible and efficiently. Um, but that, the, the person who was given the tutorial said that that's not really necessary. You can draw all kinds of squiggles if you wanted to. Uh, and I thought, this is brilliant. I can make my circuits round. Um, and so they actually circumnavigate that PCB board and connect to the keys uh, in a circular fashion as opposed to straight linear lines. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'll place my microprocessor to the east. That's where the information is coming from and I ain't going to. Uh, and so that's how it's laid out is the microprocessor is, is you know, placed to the east side of the keyboard uh, and the circuits run around in, in a circular pattern instead of being linear. Um, that's the type of knowledge and understanding about how the, I guess, greater um, world system, nature systems, can be represented in a technological, you know, right down to the components on that it's made from and uh, how it's actually created or designed, instead of going with, um, you know, gridding items. I, I, I read somewhere, I think that New York City was one of the very first cities in the world to be based on this gridded system, um, a very square gridded system is easier to compartmentalize uh, land. 
Um, and that is not an indigenous way of looking at things. <laughs> Land cannot be compartmentalized into rectangles and squares. Uh, and you have to let those organic shapes exist. Um, so in including those ideas, right, when you're developing technology, I think is, is super important. Um, and then one of the other things that I found in that process was um, we were going through the star chart uh, in class one day, and um, my instructor said, okay, uh, so everybody stands up and faces east, and then we recite the syllabics that are facing that direction, and then you turn and then you cite the, the syllabics. Well, um, he started with the syllabics when he said facing east. Uh, if you visually look at it on the screen from a north, uh, I guess from a western perspective, we assume the top of the paper to be north, you know, where the top of the screen is north. Um, and it is not. And the reason it is not, well, at least the way it was described to me, is when you sit in ceremony, so you're, if you're in a lodge uh, and you're doing a sweat or you're, you're in ceremony, you face south. Um, I don't know the whole story behind why you face south, but east is always to your left, which means if you were imagining yourself sitting on your screen facing the top of your screen, the top of your screen is then south, which makes the left side of the screen east. Uh, so I re, it wasn't a, a hard a redesign of that keyboard, but I placed the microprocessor, if it was sitting on your desk, is on your left-hand side, but it's east because the top part of the keyboard is south. Um, so that's a, a very important idea is that we can't assume that if somebody says, you know, it's on the north side of your screen or the east side of your keyboard, you might have a different reference point to what east or north actually means. Um, and uh, that was really intriguing. That, to, that blew my mind. And I was already involved in bringing these cultural elements into technology. And yet here's another example of where Western or European thought processes have just kind of been ingrained into how we perceive the world. Um, that is not necessarily uh, accurate for everybody. Uh, you don't know who somebody's north or south is, you know, when we say the north part of the screen or the south part of the screen. I think a lot about directions in general, right? Like, right? Like when I lived in Central America, people would give you directions, you know, based on the actual north. They'd be like 500 feet north, and then you turn 200 feet left and, or, you know, south and then east. Nothing is like right or left because it's not based on you. It's based on the world, right? They don't really right. ever tell you to do something like, go up two streets and then turn right because they're like right according to who <laughs> according to what direction from what it's always like based on the world um and yeah it is very common to give north and south and east and west directions of your body i, I used to grow up always knowing where east was because of, of prayer and then now you're like Okay, so that's always how I tell directions yeah. is like, well, we know you know where east is, so then just go like, you know, 400 yeah. feet east and then left. So, yeah, it's really interesting how our culture can have so much to do with um, how we compute, how we walk down the street so we can find a friend, um, or how we engage uh, with, uh, with moving our body if someone says, uh, you know, turn your hands to the left or turn your hands to the east. It can mean a totally different thing, right? That's right. Yeah, there is a there is a really great TED talk by uh, Lyra Baroditsky um, that where she discusses this Aboriginal group in Australia who refer uh, where these directions, these cardinal directions, are not based on the individual. They're based on the actual directions. 
and where you're located in, you know, within that paradigm uh, is different. And so they might say, uh, if they're facing south and there's an item on their kitchen table, they will say in relationship to where they are, where that table is located. So if you're if they're facing south, it's to the uh, to the you know to the northeast or something. But then if they're facing west, it's in a different direction. Right. Uh, right. And um, uh, and they develop this sense of direction. Uh, it's part of their language. So when they describe stuff, there is no um, the uh, like it's not based on the directions from the self, right? Where I go forward or backwards, but if I turn around, those roles are reversed, right? My forward and backward are no different. That is not the case in their language. And it's really fascinating. And I actually came across that through this idea of, well, what is North? How, you know, when we describe North or describe South, how many assumptions are we making? There is only a true North uh, there in terms of directions, but when we refer to those directions in person to other people and on our devices or on our, um, you know, on a map even, because if you take a map, a paper map and lay it on the table and turn it around, you are facing north, but the south is actually on the map is facing, right? right? And so uh, it started confusing those those directions um, because cultures are different. The, the cultures view those directions in different ways. And um, yeah, I really like that TED talk about uh, that explanation. She does a really good job of explaining in this particular culture how intimately tied their culture is to the directions uh, and and identifies the individuals uh, and their, their space and their belonging within the greater context of the world uh, because of that. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I really love the, the things that we can uncover by looking at the world through an indigenous lens, like the way that we can. It's not just how you look at your screen, how you uh, create your PCB board or route your connections to your, you know, your your eventual uh, electrons that are flowing through your keyboard or how your code looks or what type of functions um we, we can find that we uncover so many new ways of it, it connecting to the technology, to the world. Um, what's, so what's next? What, what are you excited to do? Are you continuing? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you're continuing to iterate on this project, but are there any other exciting um, projects that you're hoping to connect with uh, in the next few years? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's um, uh, more personal projects, especially that I think there are more uh, suitable now, given uh, what's you know kind of a, uh, come up in in Canada in the past week or so with the uh, uh, 215 children that were found, uh, you know, remains that were found in the Kamloops Residential School. Um, I actually had a plan to uh, be a part of a um, mapping um, residential school survivor mapping uh, project where uh, individuals uh, who survive residential schools um, are their stories are mapped. So where you know where did where has life taken them? And so not only is it a geographic mapping, um, but there's an oral mapping of story and history that's attached to each one and time or there's a temporal element um, because they didn't always exist in a, a given geographic location for you know their entire life. They've moved, right? So where did life move them to? 
after this residential school experience. So that, that's that's one project that um, I think is still on the in the works. Uh, another one is, um, you know, I do beadwork. Uh, I've never done uh, weaving, and uh, I'd like to create my own Métis sash. Um, and there's so there's be there's weaving patterns, um, and I think I can extend that those concepts that I've developed in my beading application to apply to a weaving application as well. And uh, my intent, uh, because it's very difficult uh, unless you're doing a jacquard loom type uh, imagery where you can create uh, almost photorealistic yeah. uh, works, you know, um, I'd like to create a Métis sash that has imagery and not just patterns, nice. uh, but actually, so similar to uh, a wampum belt that has <laughs> patterns, uh, but it also tells a story, right? Each of those beads um, is placed for a reason, and there's a story that uh, goes into it, and it describes, right? So the treaty wampum belt, for example. Um, I want to do the same thing with the Métis sash, is create uh, a program that will allow you to weave a sash that tells a story that you can visually see, uh, and then be able to, to give that to a, uh, a weaver and actually have the, the, that belt woven and have it made. Uh, and I, I met a weaver last summer um, who I, I'm gonna see if she's interested in nice. producing. You know, I'm gonna give her the pattern and see if she can make a belt for me. Um, and that's, I'm really excited to see that, right? And, and again, how do I, um, the loom as a, as a technological device, how or what can I do with it from a cultural perspective that will give it even more, uh, you know, grain it or indigenize it even more. Um, it is ultimately, I think, a Western device, you know, it's a, a European origins. Um, so, so is there an opportunity there to convert that into uh, something that's more indigenous? Um, so yeah, those are, those are two of uh, I think projects that I'm really excited about, uh, as well as getting my existing um, uh, Cree sharp is uh, the English word. It's the same uh, achimo, uh, which is story in Cree, um, is what uh, uh, how I'd call it in Cree. But in Cree sharp I, is how I'd refer to it in English. It's the same programming language. Um, but I want to be able to give it to people and see what they can make with it. Um, and, and then I want to curate a, an exhibition of the work that's produced from people that are not me, because it's, yeah, it's, so it's cool. not necessarily about me. It's about the community. And yeah. um, I just want to help facilitate it and make it happen and then see what the community can pr provide and you know showcase what the community has to say. Absolutely. So. I mean, I think that's part of the cultural tradition of esoteric coding languages, right, is some of them are made very personal and, and only one person engages with them. But but part of the promise of them is that you're creating kind of a strange world that others get to play with, right? Like you get to create this, <laughs> this sandbox with other people <laughs> could make some strange esoteric projects with, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really wonderful. Um, and I, I love the idea of weaving. I've, I've seen a couple of you know, fantastic projects and weaving. I, I once ran an artificial intelligence uh, lab in New York, and one of my resident artist residents was, her name's Pam Liu, and she does a lot with weaving and code. And she, her, one of the projects she did while she was in my lab was, you know, she had this, this loom that kind of had like a processing sketch that it connected to, and you could kind of plug in different data, and we, we kind of used AI. And what she did, she used our supercomputer and our AI and machine learning scientists to connect it so that when she was actually doing 
the like she had this physical jacquard loom when she was actually doing the leaving weaving it was actually mining uh ethereum which was very fun and it was just like totally ridiculous like you know it's like you know because you can imagine mining ethereum takes a lot of computational processing power and it's done in milliseconds and then here she is like <laughs> one millisecond one you know like across the loom it was very fun but um i'd highly recommend looking up her work uh, if you know just to kind of see because i feel like i feel like she's one of my favorite like computational weavers in the world <laughs> um but yeah that was uh i i really like what she's what she is uh you know because we all those of us who are listening may know but for some of the audience members that are not aware the really earliest instance in western culture of um of computation uh Ada Lovelace is considered to be the mother of a computer science in Western culture. I say that again because as an indigenous person, I don't agree. But in Western culture, Ada Lovelace is, is considered to be the the mother of computer science, and she uh, created her coding languages inspired by the Jacquard Loom. So that's kind of why we all we're all obsessed with it as coders, you know. Like, and it's cool. I mean, it's really cool. But I love that you're in, in, indigenizing that concept as well. That like, hey, Jacquard Loom wasn't really the first uh, computational loom here you know and I, I love that that's really cool yeah 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 well that's i i well I, I really you know i wish you the best on those projects i think that's really incredible i i have gotten you know emails or messages or or even just friends calling me up um since hearing the stories about uh for a lot of my non-indigenous friends it was the first time they have heard of residential schools which of course is a little it's hard for me to believe and not right? <laughs> like i'm like huh that's interesting. And they're like, but you just knew about this your whole life? And I'm like, well, I mean, my grandmother is a survivor of a, of a residential school. So, yeah, I knew about it my whole life. Um, but even if I didn't have a family member, it, it's kind of you know common knowledge in an indigenous community. But, um, yeah, it is kind of interesting. Have you been sort of having a similar, I don't know, reckoning with some of your non-indigenous friends that are like, what? Is that really real? Yeah. Did that really happen? What are you talking about? <laughs> There, there, there is some. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing here uh, is um, the uh, con uh, it's hard to explain, but my, my non-Indigenous friends uh, don't know what to say. And uh, because there's uh, this concept that's kind of coming out of it of uh, Western guilt, right, or colonizer guilt. Um, and so they're, you know, they're are, are they jumping on the bandwagon to say, I support the indigenous people because they truly, you know, they truly do. Or are they jumping on that bandwagon because they don't want to be seen as one of these other, like the, the, the people that did it, right? They don't want to be associated with the, um, with the people that ran the schools. Uh, and so they have this guilt by association of just being because they're white or European uh, origins. And, um, it, it's a it's a fine line that they have to navigate. And so sometimes it's, um, you know, I, I see them on Facebook. I actually did on uh, Monday this this week. Uh, I wanted to see how many of my friends had changed their um, profile picture to orange, something orange, or you know, every child matters, or um, any of the number of you know images that have come out of you know because of this um, awareness now. Uh, and it's really hyper awareness and a lot, there was actually a lot of, uh, 
you know, um, people on on Facebook that are not indigenous, but because they feel they do feel, I think, uh, a certain sense of uh, compassion and support, um, and uh, they're aware of this. Uh, and uh, and also to to say that they're not happy with their government <laughs> yeah. either. Right? So. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, it's 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 important for them to have a way that they can understand and discover and connect to their history, right? Like this is part of their mm -hmm. history. Um, yeah, I think that's that's so important. I, I think about that a lot. That this is this is their history that is un being uncovered and that they need yeah. to reckon with and understand um, rather than seeing it as like an indigenous issue that they need to understand as an indigenous issue. It's like, actually, it's part of your government, your culture. But, and, you know, that's right. That's yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's it's good. I think the awareness, uh, whether it's it's out of, uh, out of yeah. guilt or from a, a natural um, compassion, uh, I, either way, it's still good because you recognized that this is this is not right, uh, and it was children of all you know. That's the that's I think that's the kicker is, you know. <laughs> Talks are being so crazy. Come on, settle down, babies. <laughs> Sorry about that. They're puppies. They like to attack each other while I'm working. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, no, absolutely, and I I, I think a lot about I. I work for a German company, and so I, I used to, before the pandemic, I used to go to Germany every month, and I would enjoy seeing a lot of the museums and uh, different um, memorials and uh, museums and uh, education systems that were all really around looking at the, the, the history of you know, genocide and the Holocaust in Germany, um, which, is, which is just very different than it is in North America. <laughs> But I, I was really fascinated by that, that so many um, you know, Germans can talk about it, can talk about, they know so much details, they know so much, they have a lot of education, I would say, there's a lot of education around it, and it doesn't mean that it's there without any type of disagreement, right? Like, there's definitely different, you know, people in their country that have different opinions about the past, but uh, uh, there's a great uh, deal of education, right, which I think is very mm. interesting. Um, what, what, what types of um, ways would you hope that this new project that you're doing around visualization of movement, of um, uh, what, what ways are you hoping that the indigenous community can engage with it or experience it? Um, it uh, that's, that's, it's a hard, that's a hard one to do. Um, Cause I, I much like the way I did my my programming languages, I started with the language itself. Go, I'm going to write a programming language. What do I need? I need variables, and I need you know loops, and I need to know uh, conditional branching, and um, and then you go into the language and you realize that there's nothing that represents any of these, and you have to create it from scratch. So, um, my hope is that the indigenous communities that are um, engage with because a, a lot of the project from my understanding you know it is aimed at individuals and so they're about individual stories uh and cree uh well uh, i say say just cree i'd say all uh indigenous peoples especially ones that have oral language um, where you know the only reason we have an orthography at all is because western culture kind of necessitates it uh, it's a necessity to have things written down. Um, 
you know, in in our court system and our um, if it's not written down, it's not truth for some reason, right? Yeah. Things like that. Um, there's these, uh, and, and yet Cree language is a giant uh, encyclopedia of history, right? And so, uh, right, like when we, if we go back to those words that um, I was talking about, what Nitsikasun actually represents, that developed over, you know, centuries of that knowledge being, uh, and what it actually represents is far deeper than its literal translation or how we would understand it in English. And um, so from that perspective, uh, Indigenous languages are much more of uh, knowledge-based systems as opposed to communicative-based uh, systems. They carry with them in, you know, it's all wrapped in the actual language itself, histories of knowledge. And so when I hear, like, the, the English translation for Achimo, which would be, which is story, uh, Cree stories in Cree or stories in indigenous languages are much more than stories. Stories are things that uh, you read and then, you know, you know, Jack and Joe went up the hill or something like that. Like, um, but they don't necessarily have any teachings or anything with them. And usually when you hear uh, an indigenous elder start telling a story, they will say something along the lines of, I'm, I'm going to give you this story. There's a transmission and an understanding that what they're passing to you is a form of knowledge, as opposed to saying something like, I'm going to read you this story. And then it, it's kind of up to you. Well, so you are a, an active participant in listening. But if I'm giving you this story, you are now a carrier of this story. And your job is to take that story and pass it on uh, to somebody else. And there, that's a very distinctive difference, I think, in understanding what story is from a Western perspective and an Indigenous perspective, because an Indigenous perspective, um, what the word story actually represents goes far deeper than just, you know, a string of events that happen to characters um, that may or may not be fictional, right? Um, it is uh, a way of looking at the world as a, um, I guess, a giant encyclopedia and being able to understand it in that context. Uh, and not necessarily just being able to describe it with words. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that, uh, you know, the, the integrating that or, or bringing that to community is about reframing the technology that's going to be used, accepted by the community on the context of the community. The community has to be the drivers of that um, personal Indigenous knowledge, not uh not just words right it's not just somebody's biography um it's knowledge that's being shared with the community um and so that that comes with uh, a certain level of uh, ethical treatment who owns it and how is it passed on how is that uh shared with the greater community at large because it's not just the communities that um, these individuals are from and, and who they're speaking about um, but everybody around the world would have access to those stories as well. So how does that stories are they're treated with respect uh, and that they're able to retain that respect? I think a lot about that when I think of the ways that, you know, computer science is a little bit closer to an indigenous concept of, of sharing of information with our open source 
construct. It's not the same since open source obviously is still based upon, uh, you know, closed sourcing your open source. You still have to sort of litigate against international standards of copyright, right? So it's not like, uh, okay, it's not, not perfect. But then when I think about stories, like if I wrote a story and published it and I said, no, no, no everyone can use it. Um, somebody could use it and then, you know, sell it to make it a movie and then no one can use that story again, right? Like they're, like anyone can close source it at any time, open source. And I know we see a little bit of that with like the copy left instead of copyright movement when it comes to publication, but um, it's still sort of uh, maybe reserved for, for people publishing things on the web and not really like uh, like stories that are written down, but also how, how we connect to stories that are not written down but shared orally and how do they... I guess to use like if and logic, right? <laughs> that, that it's like you can use it, but you can't close source it, right? Like you can you can share it and use it as much as you want, but you can't stop someone else from using it as well, right? I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on Wampum.codes and sharing your amazing knowledge and experience and fantastic projects. Um, it's, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Hi, hi, thank you. Yeah, it was so great to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>